The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Micah 3, 1 through 8. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them, for he will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him, who put nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with the power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rachel turned to me um, right before that passage and said, well, this is uplifting. Um, you know, um, I don't know if you are podcasters. Um, I am a big podcast guy, and uh, primarily because, I mean, if you lived in Nashville and um, you realize you're in your car, maybe not as long as you think, not like half an hour or 45 minutes, but 10, 20 minutes here, there, and so I love just kind of clipping along little bits here, there, a lot of podcasts, and I often ask a lot of you, uh, what do you listen to, and I'll kind of listen and go, oh, that was a terrible idea, um, but there's, no, I'm just kidding, there's some great ones out there, um, but one of the ones that's been out that some of you, um, even if you haven't heard much of it, you may have heard of it, it was one called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, it was a podcast that was put out <clears throat> Um, about a, a, a very popular church that grew in Seattle um, and a guy named Mark Driscoll. And, you know, if you hadn't heard of it, you may have heard about it. And it really, in some ways, uh, kind of likens itself to, you know, if you're driving down 65 and there's a car wreck and most people are slowing down, not because they're in the wreck, but because they're just wanting to look at it. And there is a little bit of that of the podcast. But, you know, I heard an interview about this um, podcast by the guy who uh, kind of created it and does the interviews, and, you know, he said he's had people kind of go all over the place with it. Some people are mad uh, because they feel like he's exploiting uh, people's wounds. Some people are mad because they think they're, you know, villainizing or highlighting the, uh, the church and um, all of its warts. But the thing that I thought was so interesting and, and what I appreciated about it wasn't just the podcast and you kind of separate. You know, a lot of people, as we need to learn, is not to project everything we listen to. Oh, gosh, that's my story. Well, that's not. But to also listen to it and go, man, this is a bigger thing. You know, it's easy to talk about the main character who's Mark Driscoll and other people in it. But really, what I found interesting was how the whole system and leadership and it impacted everybody. Everybody was a part of this church, and 
its difficulties and in some ways its fall, if you want to call it that, which is hard. And this is not the story that's, that is, um, as people, you know, listen to it and are, oh my word, this is, a, it is not uncommon in our day. Um, and it's not just about one person. It's about the leadership abroad. And we've been looking at a book in the Old Testament called Micah. It's an Old Testament minor prophet. Minor not because it's not a big time book, but because it's short. There are major prophets and minor prophets. And it's because, they're, because of length. We've put that word on it. But Micah wrote in the 8th century. And when he wrote to the people of Israel, the kingdom had split. So you had Judah and Israel... And so usually the king, at, you know, was one kingdom. It was usually David or Solomon was split. There were kings over each of those northern and southern kingdoms. A lot of times the uh, judgment or the issues or the, the justice primarily fell on, the, on that one king. But Micah's book takes this chapter, and we actually looked at chapter 5 uh, last week and looked at um, how chapter 5 talks about the king uh, that is Jesus as opposed to the kings. But this chapter doesn't just stop there. It goes to the systems of leadership. It goes into the hearts of where the issues are, not just the kings of Judah and Israel, but further down in. And it even gives us markers of that. Uh, and it talks, and we're going to look at this passage in, in, in two parts. It's always helpful when the author kind of breaks it up. The first four verses really give us kind of an unpacking of uh, leaders in marketplace, leadership in the marketplace. What does it look like? And then five through eight really unpack leaders in the church. And it gives us this idea of where things have gone wrong and how do we know that? And how is justice, which is really the word that is to be about this whole passage, come in for all of that, all of those who are part of the kingdom and of that, and how they were held accountable. So we're going to look at this passage in those two ways. And I really, as we read it, uh, as we look through it, be reminded, uh, we'll always do this. We can't just jump to, what does it look like for us now? We have to first think about, what was it like for them to hear this? Then to move to us. Because that's really important, especially when we talk about leadership in civic and marketplace places and leaders in the church and that type as well. But it begins with this. Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, which is primarily driving to civil leadership. Is it not for you to know justice? Rhetorical question. Is it not for you to know justice? And, and by the way, this is one reason I, I really love the prophets of the Old Testament. They really... Uh, validate sarcasm. And if you're a sarcastic person, if you read anything of the Old Testament, they're constantly asking rhetorical questions that make you go, oh, well, yeah, okay. But that's what he's getting at. Is it not for you to know justice? Of all the people, of all the places, shouldn't the people in civic leadership that are to apply the law in places of oppression and care and need know what justice is? Shouldn't they understand it? Shouldn't they internalize it? Shouldn't it make sense to them, vocationally, if anything? But what is the rhetorical question getting at? No. <laughs> they don't seem to at all. And even the very next verse that says, you who hate the good and love the evil tells us that 
their understanding of justice is far from what it should be. In fact, I think their approach is a good way to understand this. There's a difference between foolishness and wisdom. This question rhetorically almost comes across like a proverb. It comes across as if, do you understand this? And the difference between foolishness and wisdom is this. I think an overflying overview that wisdom is really making sense of this world as God's world and us tailoring our lives to it. Foolishness is where we say this world is about me and we fashion it to us. So, and I know that sounds like, oh, well, yeah, makes sense. But think about how easy that is. Now, and we're going to read a lot of this, and you may have thought, gosh, these people and the evil. It talks about evil and good. But evil and good weren't just decisions. They were dispositions. It's that they had been making these decisions along the way. And it, it slowly and surely moved their life away from how they're supposed to apply the reality of justice in that life. Is it for you to not know justice? Do you not know it? They became fools of the way they thought that their world wrapped around them. Isn't that easy? I mean, think about just this moment. I'm just going to say this, and I have this too, so I'll <laughs> totally confess. How many times in our week do we stop and go, you know, I haven't even thought about God this week. Not just not even prayed, like thought about him. Think about how easy our lives begin to just move away and we shape what works for us. They're not saying they don't care that God exists or that he helps them. Even it talks about then they will cry to the Lord. They still cry out. These judges and civil leaders cry out to God but they don't hear anything back. Because what they've done is decide their relationship to God really isn't what they're about. And so they begin hating good and loving evil. Now that sounds really harsh, but isn't that where you go? It's where it leads. It's again, not just one decision, but a disposition. Their hearts begin to live on this path. And again, wisdom and foolishness, anywhere it's described in the Bible, isn't a doorway. It's a path. It's a step-by-step step of how we live out this life. And I, I, I'm reminded just of the tangibility of the plates being passed, but it, it really is a reminder for us that this isn't, there isn't just a spiritual side to this and a, and a not, or physical, intangible, you know, that there's not separate. How we make sense of this world vertically always translates horizontally. Always. It always comes out that way. Look, Forbes even, and, and look, the internet is, I'm sure you've read a million of these articles, is replete of leadership articles about toxic leadership or anything like that. Forbes, I happened to read this one. I thought this was really well put. And a good, this is Forbes magazine, toxic leadership definition. Toxic leaders tend to also be toxic team members, and colleagues. Some are hardworking individuals and loyal to their organizations. The problem lies not in their work ethic. Notice that, by the way. It's not that they're just bad workers. Leadership isn't that somebody's not making things productive. But listen, it says, but they're in their misplaced priorities as leaders, 
they only work to promote themselves, oftentimes at the expense of others. And if we know that, think about that for a minute. Oftentimes, it's not often just one decision, it's multiple ones that show, what is this really, who makes this up? How are they doing this? And I think it gives us this, honestly, pretty gruesome mark of what happens in this kind of leadership position when civil leadership moves away from true justice. And it's here in verses two through three, and it's a picture of someone cannibalizing someone else. And I do want to read it again for the sake of our, our minds because this is in here for us to understand what they are doing to people when they hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. You know, when, when that kind of leadership begins to move off, and many of us have either experienced it or gone off, it, it begins to be gruesome. It begins to do exactly what that picture is telling us. It begins to dehumanize. The mark of when justice has been removed is when it begins to dehumanize those that are part. And, and, I, and, and I think when the Bible gives us such graphic imagery, it shows us Again, this is exactly what it not only feels like, but what it is doing to the people in these places. And, and what they are doing is, in terms of their desire, you can even read before and after this, to hold power, to, to, instead of scattering the power, they're holding it to themselves and taking bribes and, and, and using their means of oppression not to care for people, not to be an advocate for the people that need an advocate, but to remove that and say, I'm my, mo- I'm my own advocate. I got only can take care of me. I heard this described really well by um, some thought leaders, the difference between exploitation and contemplation. The exploitation is a, a posture in which we look at people for our sake. Like, what can they do for me? And, and as much as that sounds, yes, again, self, but... That's how we can often look at our lenses, this cost-benefit analysis. What does this person do? What can they do for me? We don't look at them with kindness. But contemplation is actually to look at someone and behold them. To actually hold their, their gaze for a moment and say, you're amazing. You're in the image of God. Uh, I've been reading a book. I've mentioned this name. I love this author and thought leader's name is Andy Crouch. He, he told an illustration Recently, when he was in the uh, Chicago O'Hare Airport, um, and if you if you've traveled through Chicago, if you land in Chicago, you might be sitting in the airport for a long time because that's how O'Hare is. And he described this moment where um, he had several hours. He's a speaker and teacher, and he travels all over. And he had a few hours where he just man, he'd been in meetings. He was going to sit again on a plane, and he just found himself in the airport and was like, "I need to walk. <laughs> need to get some exercise." And as he was thinking, he thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to try something here. And he thought in his head, every person I pass, I'm going to walk from one end of the airport to another, it's a couple miles. And everyone I pass in my head 
when, and without looking at them creepily and making them be like, why is this guy staring at me? I'm gonna look at them, take in their face for a moment and say in my head, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. And to hear him describe the number and various people, and you think about an airport, people all back waiting, myriad of people, faces, places, stories, and he doesn't even know the full extent, yet he's walking through and everyone he sees and even as he describes them to the extent that he can, he looks at them and says, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. And he said that with that exercise changed him so profoundly to understand how do we approach this world if we really believe that God is who he says he is, how do we actually approach people in contemplation, not exploitation? How do we actually behold people in the way that they are to be held and approach our vocations, approach our, 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 our homes, approach, leave these doors and, and, the, and go into the marketplace and, and actually live out what the Bible teaches us that there's not some separation here, that we're not just doing something here and then there's something different out there, but that we leave here. And the way that people receive us is that we take a joy in them because we behold them, not because we, we have this judgment column, whether they are this or that, but because we approach this world as it needs to be approached with the disposition of the justice that is deserved to that. That's, that's what it means. You know, you, you know that we're making justice statements all the time and we don't even know it? You know when you put, uh, drive down a street and you see one of those little flags and this little sign that says, drive like your kids live here? That's a justice statement. Uh, I just went to a Vandy basketball game last night. Do you know how many justice statements were yelled at that game? That's a foul. No way. I mean, justice all over the place being cried out. How do we approach this world with wisdom and the markers that the Bible paints that gives us the picture of that in leadership and pray for those who are, even when we don't like it? or vote for them, or care. Because we see this world in a different way. You know, the difference here in this whole point is, is that leading in this way means it's, it wasn't just some cold, calculated understanding of justice. It was their full relationship to God. That's why in the, verse four it says, then they will cry out to the Lord and he will not hear them. Again, it's not that they just made one decision and it's like, uh-oh, he's not gonna hear you if you cry out. It's not that. It's the fact that they decided they didn't need him. So when they cry out in a way, not in a way for God himself, but cry out for something they need him to fix, is he just useful or are they in relationship with him? Similar thing to even the... <laughs> And this is funny for your pastor to stand up here and preach this, but I will boldly. Verse five, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets 
who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. To declare peace was not a small thing. That's why it's in quotes. To say peace, the word shalom, was a very important language and, and, and word for the people of God. But what they were doing with this, they would, in one sense, as one commentator said, they were saying, okay, you'll hear anything you need coming out of my mouth as long as you give me something to put in it. It became this prosperity message. And as much as maybe we know the difference between those things, there's a fine line between that happening and not in our churches. One of the things that I pray and I've been able to serve in capacities in our what's called a presbytery where we deal that. We have accountability. We talk to each other about, hey, what's going on in your church here and there is to see ourselves clearly and to be humbled and to not think that we have it all together and to know in the places where we can fall. And the thing that you may have heard me say in certain meetings or be it CPC 101 or other places that that it is so important for us to have what we call a fixed theology and a flexible methodology. And when we switch those, it becomes very dangerous. When we make our theology flexible to where it really is more about us, if we have our stake, especially when it comes to a place where there is a church on every corner, you can decide this or that about what you want in your church. And look, I'm not here to say, come here because of this. We are not the cool thing. We're not trying to be. And one of the things I'll even say on our website, we have a webpage saying, if this church isn't the one for you, we want you to be in a church, a worshiping community. And look, they're not all even of this denomination. But what I am saying is, what are we taking up in that? What kind of a, a worshiping community are we? What kind of a, and I'm, I'm held accountable to this. What kind of leaders are we? And what kind of leaders are we taking this good news of the gospel out? Is it really one of grace or is it something else? I remember a story of a friend of mine. This is years ago and you wouldn't know when or where it happened. But, um, he brought his father who was not a Christian. And if you're here this morning, um, welcome. We hope there are a lot of people here who would say, you know, I'm just kind of dabbling in this thing, coming and coming back into church. And his father happened to be with him. And, uh, he left the service and was talking to his dad, just questioning, hey, what'd you think? You know, what'd you think about service, sermon, those kind of things. His dad turned to him at lunch and said, I need to tell you, that man that I listened to doesn't believe a thing that he said. Now, that not only makes me think, (laughs) not just of me, but what does it mean for us to live the gospel, to have a relationship with God that actually impacts the way we live? That people see it. 
And they're not just hearing us claim peace, and yet our lives look like war against everything and everyone that would get in our path. I would say that is very true and real of our time today, our culture, our time and cultural moment today where where we, we can easily say peace in churches and yet people view, and you may be here this morning and view the churches, this is, feels like anything but peace. What do they encounter? You know what's ironic about the word peace that Micah uses this word is that the word peace, meaning shalom, is actually the word to drive to justice. In fact, when I've heard it described by theologians that the idea of what justice is in bringing together shalom, that justice is moving towards that peace, is basically like a quilt or a fabric that's been ripped apart. And justice is the weaving it back together into those parts and pieces in the right fabric that it should. And justice is the mode of doing that. It's working towards actually giving the picture of what this world that the Lord has made is to be. This is how the church impacts the world. The picture of what we're moving towards. (laughs) That when we say even at the table that the Lord Jesus has come, we proclaim his death until he comes again, that he came to show justice and he's gonna come back and complete it. And all things will be made new. And our purpose, why are we here just to kind of toil to happens? Or are we actually we're called to show what that justice and towards shalom is in every corner of where you work and play? And me too. You know, the mark he gives us here is the difference in what they are. And notice in verses six and seven, it talks about these visions and divinations and things like that. And then in verse eight, it's a but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord. He noticed he stops with power and then he says, but what is that power with the spirit of the Lord? And the reason he does that is he wants them to know you are filled with power, but your own power They're seeking divinations and other ways, seers and diviners. They're seeking ways to maintain the power that they can have without doing it. There's an NPR deal with Chris Rock talking about his grandfather as a preacher. Um, Yeah, I did did just take a turn to talk about Chris Rock. But this is what's interesting. They asked him the question, "What was was religion a part of your life? He said, no, when you grow up with a preacher, it's almost like seeing a magician and knowing all of his tricks. (laughs) did your grandfather see it as tricks? Nah, I don't think he thought of it as tricks, but every job becomes a job. You figure out shortcuts. I'll watch Joel Osteen or T.D. Jakes or others. I can see when they are are as a preacher, and I can see when they're using their tricks. You can tell when the preacher calls an audible because he's losing his crowd. (laughs) That's why I'm using this illustration, by the way. Are you watching them for the performance reasons? That's what he asks. I do think that's a very astute. Now, I, I'm, I'm not saying that to condemn his grandfather. I'm saying that to call us to look at the mirror of what we're per- portraying, and me included. What power are we filled with? This is why 
he finishes here. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sins. That the impact of the Holy Spirit is to be justice. And do you know what justice is? It's not just beating you down. It's lifting up the oppressed. It's calling sin for what it is. And that's why he's saying he's full of the Holy Spirit. It almost comes across to me like revival. And I'm not sure if you've been following the Asbury revival stuff that's been going on at the college, Asbury College. Really interesting story if you've been listening to it. We can talk about revival and those kind of things at this college if you want. But it was interesting um, what we think revival is and what it's not. Uh, I was talking to uh, Jake Patterson, our, our student coordinator, this week, and he, he told me that at, at his school, he goes to Belmont, he said there were people that came to him at Belmont, or he heard quotes at Belmont, like, of these people hearing about what was going on at Asbury College, and they're like, hey, how do we get a revival going here? That is exactly the opposite of what revival is. Revival isn't a work of us like, hey, let's get this thing motivated. And that comes out of like even the second great awakening back in uh, the 18th, uh, early 19th century where they had what was called the anxious bench and they would play music over and over and over until you just got so emotional. You couldn't stop and you just came up forward. But what revival really is, is a following of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to our knees, to humble us, and to see ourselves for what we really are. So much so that we see that the justice is due us, and yet what do we receive? Mercy. Do you know what makes, I've said this before, and I have to say it again, anytime we get to to passages on justice, if we want to make sense of justice, the most profound way is to know where justice has been most placed, on Jesus. This table, and we need to understand this, just like the sign that we drive by on the street that says, drive like your kids leave here, is a statement of justice. This table is a statement of justice. And there has never been a statement more profound than this. As gruesome and grotesque as those two verses were we read about cannibalism, do you realize what Jesus puts himself in the position of being in this? Jesus actually says, you must consume me in order for the justice that you're gonna get gets put on me. The body and blood is the statement of justice that is due all to us. And yet, you know what we do when we walk away, when we take the elements and we leave? The Holy Spirit feeds us by faith so that we can live in mercy and display God's justice. What an unbelievable wise work of God. That we can't leave this table. Here's the thing, justice must happen. The best way for any kind of justice, social justice, economic justice, familial justice to happen in our world for us to understand it, happens right here. Otherwise, we take it up in our own hands and declare war 
when we don't even know peace. This is peace. Jesus was, was rent apart. He was scattered so we might be gathered. This is our peace. And you know what I want to do? I don't usually do this. I actually want to pray real quick before we do our confession and pray for revival. Um, and I would ask you to pray with me. Will you stand? And let's bow our heads. God, I want to pray for what we cannot manufacture and we can't do. I want to pray for your Holy Spirit to come in us and show us our sin and yet show us even greater the mercy, the justice that has been laid from our sin on Jesus and the mercy that is ours in Christ. That we might be a people that display mercy and justice in our city, that we don't just leave here and think, oh, there's church and then there's my job or my life or my family or friends or my work, but that we leave here transformed by the most powerful, profound work of your hand to give us shalom. Would we believe that? Would you do a work in those here that may have followed you all their lives but feel asleep or slumbering? Maybe, Lord, not just to create a, a, an emotional passion, but a reality in our relationship with you. And Lord, for those here that may not know you, would you bring them to yourself? Would you remind them and show them that justice isn't something we just talk about, but that you have actually done? And so can we. And it is done in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.